This is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on community and independent radio stations nationwide. Since the inception of American journalism, newspapers and other media have reflected the same white supremacist culture that exists in society. Often they have even fueled it, addressing this ugly history and calling for media justice and reparations. Colette Watson of Media 2070 writes in Yes magazine that, quote, media reparations means redistributing power and resources to realize a future in which black people control their own stories and narratives from ideation through production and distribution. Joining me now is Colette Watson, Project Director of Media 2070, and with her Alicia Bell, the co-creator of Media 2070. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Good to be here. (laughs) Colette, let me start with you. Um, And I should mention that you uh, co-wrote the uh, essay that Yes published with a couple of others. And I'll ask you to mention your co-authors as well. But tell me what it means to first say we need media reparations. Why uh, is there this need to address what media has done? Not just what, you know, government and communities have done, but what journalists and media have done. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, And I I want to, first of all, give a shout out to Vanikia Williams and Diamond Hardiman, my co-authors on the essay that you mentioned. Um, And yes, when we talk about media, we're very intentional in honing in on that particular sector of society. In our essay, which was published back in 2020 called Media Reparations, I'm sorry, Media 2070, An Invitation to Dream Up Media Reparations, there's a quote in that essay in which we say, media culture, rather, is the forest floor where policy goes to either flourish or die away. Um, And what we're saying is that we understand that our culture is where we understand what is true, we understand what our shared values and shared truths are, and that cultural narratives are what shape the conditions of our lived realities, of the policies that shape those lived realities, um, and what's possible for our futures. And we know that news media in particular, the news and information ecosystem, really shapes what we hold as true. And that all other media, whether that be entertainment media, book publishing, even social media and tech, flow from what we consider to be true. So we know that reporting has to be grounded historically, and it has to undo so much of the harm that has taken place throughout history, particularly from the news media itself. And so um, I'm wondering, Alicia, if you can uh, give us a little bit of that history. Um, There have been, you know, many, many instances of systemic racist coverage over generations, but it hasn't just been coverage. There have been, you know, um, actual sorts of um, calls for action in white-owned media and white supremacist media. There have been paid ads uh, that uh, that Colette pointed out in her article for Yes Magazine, uh, early newspapers in the U.S. published paid ads promoting the sale of enslaved African people and using that money to stay afloat. So literally uh, being uh, a solvent on the backs of human beings. So give us that history in a little bit more detail. Absolutely. Um, so as you mentioned, when... The first uh, newspapers were created in the United States. 
they were they were um, facilitators and um, places that were curating the the cell of African people. Um, and they were facilitators of human trafficking via shadow slavery. Um, because not only were they publishing ads for folks um, buying, selling people, kind of trying to find folks who had run away, they were also sometimes the brokers in the places for auction. Um, so they, they were playing a really active role um, in, in allowing and kind of co-signing slavery in the United States. Um, and then you move forward kind of from there into the, the reconstruction era and beyond. And, and one of the first places where you see folks pushing back, um, specifically when it comes to journalism, because there's been a lot of instances of folks pushing back in, in other cultural ways and other um, narrative and storytelling ways. But we see folks pushing back by creating um, news organizations that were led by and serving Black people. Um, and, and doing that, saying, we have to tell our stories for ourselves or they won't be told. Um, and so you continue to see kind of journalism, um, media kind of being complicit in white supremacy and racism in the US. You see folks um, kind of amplifying falsehoods that led to lynching. You see that kind of come to a head with instances like the, the Tulsa massacre in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where we have um, newspapers, journalism, uh, amplifying falsehoods around Black people in Tulsa, and then kind of folks mobbing up and, and really taking an attack on Black lives. And so that's continued, right? It's been structural with the FCC, the initial, um, the initial licenses that were distributed were distributed to white men only. Um, and so then we see other folks kind of creating um, other radio stations, uh, creating other kind of broadcast media to serve Black communities. Um, and then that continues, right, all the way up until today. Um, and so what we see today is we see news organizations that are being complicit in crime coverage that is disproportionately impacting Black people. Um, we see news organizations that are lifting up harmful narratives about Black communities or, or not talking about Black people at all. Um, and that's something that's been happening for decades. So, you know, even back in the 1960s, the Kerner Commission was saying that newspapers were not covering black communities as if they did anything besides commit crime um, and, and or be great. Um, but there was nothing that was in the middle, like going to PTA meetings or living in homes. Um, and we see the same thing today. I wanna hone in a little bit more on how uh, black owned media uh, tried to take back the narrative, tried to fill that void of accurate coverage of Black communities, and then received pushback. So it wasn't just that you had a white supremacist culture or have had a white supremacist culture in our media. It's that we've also had a very um, hostile environment for Black-led media to flourish, right? And uh, Colette, feel free to jump in. Sure. You know, a lot of people know the name Ida B. Wells, and we know her when, when when I was a kid, we learn about her for Black History Month and the fact that she was an anti-lynching crusader. But what maybe isn't discussed as much as I would want it to be is the fact that she was a journalist and she created she laid the foundation for investigative journalism. 
And she used her journalism to tell the truth about lynchings. And in that way was anti, an anti-lynching activist. She also had a newspaper called the Memphis Free Speech and Headlight. But when she published the truth about a lynching that happened locally, um, which the folks who perpetrated that murder claimed that it was because of a uh, an alleged sexual assault, but what had actually taken place was that the, these two black gentlemen had a store that was competition for local white business people, and so they lynched them. And when she published that truth, her paper, the Memphis Free Speech and Headlight, was burned to the ground. And that was in, uh, I believe, 1892, sometime in the 1890s. And even when you fast forward a little bit to World War One. You had the publisher of a San Antonio-based Black newspaper, G.W. Boudin, who was arrested by the United States government on charges of sedition for publishing um, a, an anti-war, some not anti-war even, he published an op-ed that a Black person wrote that was actually decrying the fact that the United States Army had hanged a number of Black soldiers for protecting a Black woman from police locally there in the San Antonio area. And, and so just in those two decades, right, those are two direct attacks. Now multiply that by the tens and by the hundreds over many, many years. Journalist um, L. Alex Wilson was uh, beaten by a mob attempting to cover the integration of Little Rock High School and subsequently died from his injuries. Right on through to now when you've you saw in 2020, journalists at the LA Times, at the Philly Inquirer, the New York New York Times and other outlets having to rise up because, um, and one of the most glaring examples to me is the Washington Post, because their newsrooms don't reflect the demographics of the community, because there aren't Black and Latine reporters, right. um, and facing so much um, difficulty trying to tell truthful stories ab about Black folks. So this, this sort of harm um, has taken place, particularly you know, against, yes, against Black press and against Black media makers working within dominant media companies. And it's all the same harm. It's all connected. And so then uh, let's uh, talk about how these newspapers in 2020 in particular, you know, it took this uh, massive racial justice uprising in the wake of George Floyd's police killing for newspapers to, for example, firsthand witness police brutality on the streets. And then, as you said, realized that they themselves were complicit. Uh, many newspapers, including the LA Times, but maybe not enough, um, actually issued apologies. Alicia, tell me about that moment where you started seeing some mea culpas, if you will, among some newspapers, how you responded to that. Some of them even pledged to improve things. And it's not clear, you know, if, if they've actually done anything about it. True. Um, and, you know, there's, there's been apologies. I, I think about even in, in my hometown um, of, of Charlotte, North Carolina, right? And in North Carolina more broadly, um, there have been apologies issued by newspapers. So the, the Charlotte Observer and the Raleigh News and Observer issued an apology for the role that they played historically um, in the, the Wilmington Massacre, which was another instance of uh, journalism narrative and harm leading to material and physical harm against the Black people and Black communities. So we've seen these apologies happen over time. And you did see a spike in those happening in 2020, um, where they have the LA Times, you have folks in Kansas City, you have the Inquirer in Philadelphia kind of saying, we haven't always covered Black communities well. We haven't always covered communities of color accurately. Um, we haven't always distributed in the ways that we have. Um, and so when we think about kind of full repair of harm, we think about it in a few different ways. So it takes the reckoning of kind of understanding and knowing that that harm happened and you have to then acknowledge it 
um, and move into accountability where you stop the harm. And then you also have to move into redress where it is kind of what do we create to make right. sure that this harm can't happen in the future. And what we see in these newspaper apologies is a lot, whole lot of reckoning. There is, and then it moves into, uh, and maybe, and I wouldn't even say a whole lot. It depends, right? It ranges on the newspaper um, or the news organization. And then we see some acknowledgement. So folks saying, this was bad, we shouldn't have done it. Um, arguably, it's much easier in, in 2020 or 2023 to say we shouldn't have done something kind of 30 or 40 years ago. Um, but I will give them credit because still not everyone has done that. Um, but then the pieces that are a, a, a little bit harder, and I say harder because it's really just a matter of perception, um, is, is moving into the accountability and the redress to say, okay, we've, we've done this harm. We have been complicit in harmful structures and harmful systems of media. Um, what are we going to do to stop that now? And then what are we going to do to make sure it doesn't happen in the future? And that's where we see a lot of news organizations stopping um, and not taking action towards accountability, not taking action towards redress. Um, and so you have news organizations that will, will say, you know, we're going to do better. Um, you'll have folks like the New York Times saying that we're going to do better. And then just a few years later, right, you'll have New York, New York Times writers and journalists and, and staff um, leaving or transitioning or going other places because it's not, it's not a tenable space for them anymore. You see that at the same, in the same ways at places like the Inquirer, at places like the LA Times, right? Um, you still hear folks in communities saying these folks aren't covering um, aren't covering my stories or aren't sharing information that is relevant to me. Um, and what I'll add too is that, you know, some of these newspapers will say it's not our job to cover hyper local stories. It's not our job to cover really local, um, really local issues. But even at a, a global level, even at a national level, we still don't see accurate, holistic coverage of information about and storytelling regarding Black communities. So, um, so it's not even an issue being hyper-local. It's just an issue of, of their, them being kind of steeped in their practices and not, not wanting to shift, um, or maybe even wanting to shift, but not taking the action to make that shift happen. So why, uh, let's talk about how newsroom diversity can be a measure, or is an important measure of reparations or type of reparation um, or undoing of harm. Uh, newsrooms, you know, sh short of the the harm that and the hostility that Black-led journalistic outlets have faced over the years, newsrooms of major media outlets like the New York Times, like the LA Times that have a huge audience, have not traditionally been very welcoming to journalists of color and especially Black journalists. Um, so what is the status today of that, Colette? And why is newsroom diversity such an important issue, um, you know, how, how can newsroom diversity translate into fairer, better, just coverage? Great question. You know, media reparations um, and, and broader reparations is not a destination. It is a process. And we understand diversity and representation as a critical, very, very early step. Some might even say first step along that path. Um, so obviously, it, it, we are very um, adamant that newsrooms need to reflect their communities demographically, intersectionally. 
Um, and but we, uh, as I mentioned, we believe that it's just the first step um, because we know that without our presence there, someone else is telling our stories or someone is filtering black stories for white consumption. And so that compounds harm. Um, but when we talk about the media reparations process, we know that it has to go beyond that and that there has to be redistribution of power and resources, as you mentioned earlier. Um, you know, one of the people we work with is the brilliant journalist and researcher Carla Murphy, who in her report, The Leavers, found that most journalists of color were being forced out of the field right around the mid-career point when they were beginning to have access to that editorial leadership power and that decision-making power. Leavers meaning people who are leaving. Yes, yes, people who are leaving the journalism industry forced out due to lack of pay, due to toxic environments, due to being burned out, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so that's why we understand that it's it's beyond diversity and inclusion that we must have care. Um, we must have institutional care and consideration um, for black journalists and media makers, and by extension, black communities. Um, so when, so let, tell me about the pledge, Alicia, that you're calling on media outlets to sign to, um, you know, promise to do better. I'm very proud to say that uh, Yes Magazine, the outlet I work for that has published um, Colette's uh, article and op-ed has signed that pledge only recently. So tell me about this pledge. Yeah, so this pledge comes out of an instance yet again where we see um, uh, it came after the, the murder of, of Breonna Taylor um, and where we see another instance where um, narrative and a culture that allows for anti-Blackness um, gets weaponized and into a physical material reality that leaves a woman dead um, and, and a family kind of without, without a relative. Um, and, and so after this, what we were hearing from a lot of, of a lot of black re reporters and a lot of black journalists and newsrooms is that they were having such a hard time navigating um, because on one hand, folks would want to cover this um, story and would want to tell this story, um, and were were not being able to because uh, they were being told by folks that they were too close to the issue that they couldn't report on it in an unbiased way. Um, on another and in other instances. We saw folks who were being kind of um, pinpointed, and they were they were being told, "You are the only person who can report on this," um, because they were the kind of token black person in the newsroom. And and holistically, what we saw in that was that folks were not were not being cared for, right? So people weren't able to take time off. They weren't able to um, utilize the time they needed to heal, to process, to be with family. Um, and, and right after that murder, you know, there was a, a slew of other folks who were harmed. Um, we had seen at the same time, right, this, a, a, a Black woman, a Black young girl being beat up by police and, on, and that being recorded. So there was so much harmful imagery and harmful video that was coming out. And it had been happening for years. Um, and folks were not able to take time to process, were not able to, to take the time they needed to be well um, in their bodies and in their spirits and in their families. Um, and we also saw coverage of protests, coverage of, um, of people taking direct action, of people grieving publicly. We saw that, that public grieving being, um, being turned into stories of criminality, stories, again, that perpetuated narratives of anti-Blackness. And so we, we issued this pledge asking newsrooms to, to care, right? Um, an action that is 
in theory, really simple, right? To care for the people, the Black folks in your newsroom, to care for the Black folks in your community, um, and, and to figure out the interplay between that. Um, and, and we did have newsrooms sign on, right? We've had newsrooms who signed on initially, newsrooms who have continued to sign on to that pledge, um, newsrooms who have committed to care. Um, and then we also saw newsrooms who chose to be kind of will, willingly obtuse, right? Um, who, who knew about the pledge um, because we had been in direct conversation with them, but because we, we issued it maybe to a group of newsrooms instead of each newsroom individually, they were like, oh, well, we couldn't sign it because um, we weren't asked specifically to sign this pledge, right? And, it's, and that's, that's, a, that's a, willful, um, a willful choice, right? Uh, folks could have signed it, folks could take this action. Um, but when you take that public action, it also opens up space for public accountability. And folks aren't always willing and ready to be in accountability in that way. And, and what I will say about the pledge too, is that like, like diversity, like representation, it is, it is one of the steps on this pathway um, to getting to reparations, to getting through reparations, right? Um, so when we're talking about care, we gave a few examples of what that looks like um, that were specific to kind of not adultifying black girls and um, not, and being a thoughtful and intentional about your coverage of public grieving and protest. But there are so many other instances um, and other sectors of Black life and Black community that were not in that pledge that we've continued to build on through our work since then. Um, and, and really, if to push kind of from that pledge to get us closer to reparations, to get us closer to getting through reparations to whatever else is on the other side, what we really need is for newsrooms to practice this institutional care, right? So when we have newsrooms who, and we have hedge funds, for example, that are, um, that are owning conglomerates of media. Um, those folks can practice care for black journalists um, by, by not only paying people well, but also redistributing their profits um, and figuring out how to contribute to pooled funds where they can put money towards black press, towards black journalism. Um, that's something that folks can do at a national level or at a hedge fund level. Um, at, a, at a more local level or a more regional level or for an independent newsroom, um, newsrooms can think about and take action towards having Black leadership um, that exists in their executive positions and in their C-suite positions, and not only having folks in those positions, but paying them equitably, treating them with care, and understanding that while they may not be the creators of anti-Blackness, that they come in that lineage and they are a part of that harm. And so long as they don't take action to shift it, they are complicit in its continuation. Um, and so there are so many actions that folks can take. Um, and what, we're, what we have been doing is building community and relationship between the newsrooms who have signed this pledge so that folks can share those different ideas. And they can also workshop through, how do we make that happen? Um, this is where I'm getting pushed back. This is what I can't do. Um, and people being able to share advice on that. So it's also been about building the community of practice of people who want to do better, want to get it right, um, so that there is power being built there. Um, so that even if and when other institutions choose to perpetuate anti-Blackness, um, over time, we are chipping away at the power and the access and the distribution that they have. Um, because at some point, and, and, and it's already happening in communities all over the US and globally, um, it's not going to be, it's not going to be sustainable. It's not going to be 
financially sustainable, ethically sustainable, um, politically sustainable for folks to um, co-create anti-Blackness. And so it's, it's really lovely for the folks who have signed the pledge, because those are the folks who have already gotten on the train that we know is going to get us to the, to the future. Um, and those folks are already taking that action right now. Right. Well, let me finally ask uh, Colette if you can tell us a little bit more about where people can find out the pledge, um, you know, maybe ask their local paper to cover it or, and to sign it, or if they are a journalist uh, signing it. And also, um, I know that there's a uh, documentary, Black in the Newsroom, that Media 2070 is involved in. So give us all the details of how people can find out more about your work. Yeah, absolutely. So we have two different ways that you can sign the pledge. If you are part of a media organization, you can sign on behalf of your organization or as you know, a person within that, um, that particular platform. And if you are a community member that wants to see the media organizations in your community signing on to this kind of pledge to care for Black communities and journalists, you can also sign. So we have two separate ways that you can sign. And you can get to both of those at media2070.org. That's media2070.org. You can also find our film, which Sonali mentioned, is called Black in the Newsroom. And it follows the journey of Elizabeth Montgomery, who is an incredible journalist based in Arizona, and the difficulties that she faced inside of a major newsroom um, in, in Phoenix, and how her, her story is actually um, just a, one illustration of a very much broader uh, dynamic of systemic media harm. And in, in putting a face on that harm, you know, with Elizabeth really um, just blessing us with the opportunity to amplify her story, it's really helped for us to, to really create awareness in communities across the country of the pressure that we have to put on these media companies and the care that we have to demand. You know, um, there used to be a newsroom diversity study um, by a group called ASNE, um, and they, it's been around for 30 years, but so few newsrooms participate now they've stopped doing the study. So we know that as of 2017, American newspapers were about 5%, uh, had about 5% African-American staff. We don't even know where we are in 2023. And so we realized that there has to be some fire lit uh, figuratively under these media companies to get them to not only, you know, begin participating in diversity surveys and other kinds of really baseline efforts like that to understand what we have on our hands, but to go many steps further and to actually care for the Black folks in their midst who are doing the hard work of telling truthful stories and holding those in power to account. So that's, you know, blackinthenewsroom.com is where you can find that film. Um, and all of these things, like I mentioned, are housed at media2070.org. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. <laughs> My guests have been Colette Watson, Project Director of Media 2070, and Alicia Bell, co-creator of Media 2070. And we'll post all of those links uh, that uh, Colette and Alicia mentioned on our website, risingupwithsonali.com, as well as a link to the article that Colette has uh, written for Yes Magazine. I'm Sonali Kolhatkar. You can access this and other interviews on our website, again, risingupwithsonali.com, by becoming a subscriber, find our audio podcast on iTunes and Spotify and follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at RU with Sonali.